bow before you. Pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed draw us to love you. And so may your word be a word which we treasure in our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. We live in a world of frauds. I came to that conclusion while I was standing in the local bank this week. About a week ago, I noticed that my credit card had a taxi charge for $73.50 in early July. I could not recall taking any taxi. I looked at the date and realised I wasn't even in Sydney at the time. So last Monday, I went to the bank to deal with the matter. I stood in the queue for a while. I was pretty chilled about it as I didn't have a big agenda that day and was finally attended by the teller. It took a while, but she registered and put it as a disputed transaction. And then I proceeded to show her two other transactions which had appeared over the weekend. Supermarket transactions at Woolworths and Coles in Bundera for $507.95 and $460.40. I'd never even heard of Bundera and certainly had not spent any time at the supermarket a total just under $1,000 was not impressive. I never spent anywhere near like that at any supermarket, let alone Bundera, which I discovered is in Victoria, and now I hadn't ordered online shopping from there. So the teller moved to replace my credit card. I spent quite a while standing there while it was all arranged. It took enough time for me to start regretting that I hadn't brought a book with me to read while I waited. But then she was done. A new card was coming in the post, I left with a sense of satisfaction. On Wednesday, I was working on my sermon on Romans chapter 8, which begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That New Testament lesson we had read by Richard a few moments ago, you can find it on page 944. That opening is one of my favourite sentences in Scripture. When I went on Christian camps as a teenager, there was a song we'd sing which began with this line, no condemnation, and I've been humming it away in my mind all week as I've reflected on this verse. It is a marvellous declaration of the Apostle Paul after the turmoil and the cries of Romans 7, which concludes, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is no condemnation. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, there I was working on this passage, but I also picked up the mail from the post office and was quite surprised to find that my new credit card had already arrived. Swift these days for Australia Post, isn't it? Anyway, I put it aside and pressed on with reading on Romans 8 at morning tea. I pulled the card out and read that I could activate it online, so I went to do that. And I noticed that the taxi transaction had been dealt with, the two Bundera supermarket items were still there. I wanted to get back to my sermon writing, but I decided to head down to the bank again, because it's a lot easier at that time of day to beat the school traffic. So I found myself inside the bank for a second time in the week. This time I came prepared. I brought a book on Romans 8 to read in case I was waiting for a while. It was the same teller lady dealing with me. 
She said she remembered who I was, but could I show her some ID? As she proceeded to deal with me, you get that feeling of, am I an alien? <laughs> Something happened? Anyway, off she went to work on the case of dealing with my credit card, and after a few minutes, I began to feel somewhat bored with looking around the bank and observing the cars driving past, so I pulled out my book on Romans 8 by Raymond Ortland. It's entitled Supernatural Living for Natural People. I literally just flicked it open and cast my eye to a random page where I read, The Gospel is like this. God approaches you and says, I have here a credit card. It is the credit card of justification. Now, had I not been standing in a bank before a teller who was dealing with my own credit card issues, well, that image of Ray Ortland's would have just rolled by. But that moment, as I stood in the bank at Double Bay, it was like words were bouncing off the page to me. I was dealing with something that was such a waste of good time, as far as I was concerned, standing there in the bank. And then it was like God had suddenly popped into the bank beside me to let me know he was there. Yeah? Do you know this credit card issue you have? It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he was writing his letter to the Christians in Rome back in the first century. I know that you might think that I don't step into banks, but actually I'm right with you even here. You might have forgotten that. I turned to look at the title again of the book. Talk about feeling Ray had got his title right, Supernatural Living for Natural People. The lady finished dealing with activating my credit card soon after, and I walked out of the bank feeling kind of somewhat elated by this sense of the Spirit with me. You know, the feeling when you get to the door and you say, you go first, Holy Spirit. Ray Ortland's words were an expansion on the message of Romans chapter 5, verse 1, which we looked at a few weeks ago. That verse which states, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Ray noted how, here in chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation. He's picking up this theme again. His words provide helpful background for Romans 8, and I'll read, read them to you. Here's what he said. This miracle of God's love, which the Bible calls justification, not in, only secures us in his favour forever, it also puts into the hand of every Christian warrior a strong weapon against moral despair in the warfare of everyday temptation. The gospel is like this. God approaches you and says, I have here a credit card. It is the credit card of justification. It accesses the infinite resources of the merit of Christ. If you take it, you can charge all your moral debts to this card. There is no limit on this card. It will give you a new credit rating in my database. And you can carry this card with you at all times. Whenever you sin, you can charge it to Jesus. So I will never declare you bankrupt. How about it? Will you accept the card? And you and I have believed God's offer and stretched out our empty hands to receive his gift. So now when we sin, we know what to do. We 
take out the card and by faith let Jesus pay for it and put us back into the black with God. Well, Ray really has a way of communicating the marvellous implications of the gospel. But it is a picture, and Ray himself is quick to note, that it must not be misunderstood. His next sentence runs, obviously, we could have used the credit card. And he goes on to explain, and we'll come to that in a moment as we continue. But for me, as I walk out of the bank with that sense of the presence of God in the most unexpected way, it resonated so truly with Romans 8, which you can see in our few Bibles has a heading. The heading is not the actual scripture, but it captures much about the whole uh, chapter. The heading is Life in the Spirit. Why do they give it that title? Because in Romans chapters 1 to 7, Paul has used the word spirit. The word in Greek is pneuma, with a P. We get the word pneumatic from it. It's a word translated spirit or wind or breath. But Paul has only used it four times in these first seven chapters. Here in Romans 8, the spirit is referred, that word is used 21 times. And only two of those occasions, uh, all, almost all 21, apart from two, refer to the Holy Spirit. Uh, notice in the, in the Bible, we, when we come to the spirit, we identify it's Holy Spirit by a capital S, though that's again that's something we've applied. Just have a quick look at Romans chapter 8. You'll see verse 1, the spirit of life. Verses 4 and 5, according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Verse 6, we set, uh, he speaks about setting mind on the spirit is life and peace. Verses 9 to 11, we have the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, the spirit is life. In verse 15, we have the spirit of adoption. The focus is less on who the Spirit is than about his role, his function, what he does through the chapter. And we see this particularly in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Notice little S there, that we are children of God. It's a chapter which is all about the work of the Spirit, the Spirit who testifies that we are children of our God, testifies with our spirit. And my first point is this, uh, and it links in with the bank experience. The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of life. I could share that little experience and some would no doubt say, well, it was just a coincidence flipping to page that spoke about the credit card what I love about this coincidence is that it happened right when I came to the chapter that Paul speaks so much about the Spirit. I want to underline my faith does not depend upon such experiences, but I've also come to delight in walking with the Spirit of life and what it is to be in connection with the Spirit of God. And Paul is utterly clear, without the Spirit, 
you do not have life. And here, and I'm picking up on the line of Romans 7, Paul is especially referring to the Jews who uh, at that time in the first century were particularly tempted to stay with the old covenant, the law, the Torah, and not move to the new covenant. And Paul's whole point is the old covenant, the law, that leads to death, trapped in sin. That's the way of the flesh. But now with the coming of Christ, the new covenant, the covenant which we indeed celebrate and mark this day, there has come the Spirit of God. And if you don't have the Spirit, then you don't have life, says Paul. Verses 8 and 9. Having commented in verse 6, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Well, part two, I began, we live in a world of frauds. And uh, sad to say, that was not the end of my going to the bank this past week. I had to return again on Wednesday. Uh, I could spend a while elaborating what happened. Suffice to say that this time I had five commentaries, which I spent quite a while reading in the bank as we sought to deal with the, the frauds and scammers and all that happens. And as I came back, I found myself just thinking about who are these people? What is this world? And I, I've shared it with a few people. Oh, yeah, I've been scammed too. I'm down tell stories. And, and, and I found myself trying to understand the way these people think. What kind of person lives life like this, playing on people, defrauding them? And how do you live like that, covering it up? Yet, ultimately, nothing is hidden, nothing is covered up before the living God who sees everything. And it's easy as I start thinking about them to start making judgments upon them and I certainly in no way condone what they are doing. It's so appalling and infuriating, just time wasting the cost, as one person said, the violation, the injustice and so on. And I hasten to add that my whole kind of little scenario in the long run is pretty minor. Though if you want to pay the thousand dollars, I'm happy for you to do that. But even as I make judgments, the words of Paul earlier in Romans 2 come to mind. And they're significant because they link in with chapter 8. Where Paul said, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And he then goes on to speak about how God, in verse 16, is the one who judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Or perhaps you sort of say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a scammer. But as you go through 
the list of what Paul speaks about. As you are confronted with the word of God, it's very clear. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as Paul goes through from Romans 2, comes to Romans chapter 7, he shows that while the law is good and holy and righteous, all it did was give sin an opportunity to trap and convict the people of God. But now, thanks be to God, the credit card of justification has come. The wonderful news, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that include the, the scammers and fraudsters? I can tell you. Absolutely not. After what I went through, I know that it is wrong. Which is why Ray Ortland's next line is so important. Obviously, we could abuse the credit card. We could hear God's offer and respond, think of the possibilities. I can go on a spending spree of sin with no consequences. That notes Ray, of course, is hypocrisy. The credit card is only for people of faith. And faith hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And so you see what is ruled out? The fraud. But of course, in the first instance, we're all frauds. So we're all there. But my point is, you can't receive Christ and return to living a life of a fraud. The only true incentive for accepting the credit card of justification is righteousness. And so Paul goes on in verse 4 of Romans chapter 8. You live in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Justification is for sinners whose hearts are longing to be rid of their sin. And for them, it really is as free and as wonderful as that credit card. But how can I be sure? What has changed? How is that really possible? And that's really what he is unpacking in chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. After making his declaration, no condemnation. And uh, let me just make clear, I'm just conscious when I said something earlier, that there might be someone who's, who's a fraud or a scammer who thinks, well, I've got no hope. But the whole point of the gospel is that we are all frauds and scammers. That's the deep truth. But now there is a message of hope found in Christ Jesus. And here is the assurance he gives. It all centers about what God has done in his Son and the work of the Spirit in bringing liberation. So look more closely at what he says in verse 2. Romans 7 was all about being trapped by the law. 
the Torah, but now Paul declares there is a new law. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The new law, the spirit of life has set us free. There is liberation. There are echoes here of the great Exodus story here. And how are we free? Free in Christ Jesus, free from the law of sin and death. And how did that happen? Well, look carefully at verse 3. It is an extraordinary verse. Here is what God has done, what the law could not do. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Hear that echo? He condemned. Verse 1, no condemnation. Verse 3, he condemned. God condemned. What? He condemned sin in the flesh. Note there that God, uh, it, Paul doesn't say God condemned Jesus. It's about executing judgment on the, on the tyrant sin. Sin has been given the death sentence. Sin is that force and power which is so at work deceiving humanity, it is at work today. And we must not trivialise the power of sin. The whole story of the Old Testament of history indeed shows the terror of the reign of sin. Sin is like a force which holds us in captivity. It is disruptive. It draws us away from God and submerges us. We scheme and scam. We find ourselves out of control. Uh, Jesus himself used the image of being taken captive by a strong man. And the only way in which we can be set free is for someone stronger to enter into his house and overwhelm him and allow us to escape. That again is the Exodus imagery, Israel being set free from the tyrant Pharaoh. And now here is the wonderful work of God, that in the cross, freedom has come. The cross, the sin offering of Jesus, has freed us from the notion that human nature is somehow too sinful. Well, the human dilemma is it's, it's too complex for God to do anything about it. Now, the cross is the great solution. Alistair McGrath has written, The surly bonds which tie us to these deeply pessimistic and oppressive views of God are torn apart by the cross. God is shown as one who is passionately committed to the well-being and salvation of his creation, he is prepared to enter into that creation and redeem it from within. Notice, he entered in chapter 8, verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice Jesus entered in. Jesus comes from the Father to earth, indicating that he pre-existed. The son, son moves from one state, pre-existence, to another state that he did not previously possess. What's that state? The flesh. 
a human being like us. That is the story of the Gospels. And notice how Paul puts it, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, Jesus is fully human. The word likeness emphasises that Jesus is the genuine article, not as though he just appeared to be human. But why didn't Paul just say he sent him in sinful flesh? He said he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Well, it's clear because Paul wants to say that Jesus' humanity was the same as ours, and yet not totally like ours to the point that he was tainted by sin. And this coming, this sending, is an achievement. He was sent as uh, he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Or well, little footnote says for a sin offering. It all focuses on his coming to die. That's where he condemned sin in the flesh. Paul's language here is sacrificial. I quote Michael Bird who said, Paul undoubtedly sees Jesus' death as a sacrifice that deals with sin in the sense of removing its stain, its burden and penalty. Jesus' sacrificial death means that God has condemned sin in the flesh, specifically in the flesh of Jesus. God does not condemn Jesus. More precisely, God condemns sin. But Jesus sucks the poison of sin from us and draws its vile venom into his own flesh where it is denounced and defeated. That is what is known as the doctrine of penal substitution. He took our place. There are some churches that reject that doctrine. I never know why. Because at the very heart of who we are, what God has done. And here it is in Romans 8 verse 3, it's echoed in Galatians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, God made him who had knew no sin to be sin for us. Bishop Tom Wright comments, in Jesus' death, the condemnation that sin deserved was meted out fully and finally so that sinners over whose heads that condemnation had hung might be liberated from this threat once and for all. The words of that hymn, Man of Sorrows. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. And who is it for? It is for all us frauds, for all who are imprisoned. What is it for? And so we can go back to being frauds? Of course not. How could that be? That's why we have Romans 8 verse 4, having said what has happened, what God has done, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
We are set free by the spirit of life to live and walk according to the spirit. And that means we're enabled to fulfill the righteous obligation of the law. We're no longer controlled by the flesh, by sinful nature, but we're now controlled by the spirit. Do you see Paul's point? Sometimes people preach the gospel as like, we are saved, saved souls, and now we're off to heaven. As though now it doesn't matter what we're doing here, but Paul's gospel is all about this redeeming, this renewal of God of a whole new people in the here and now, which means an end to living as frauds and scammers. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the person who's got a bit of an obsession with stealing things, and he says, stop stealing. You're in Christ now. Freedom from the law is not freedom to sin. And so in verses 5 to 11, Paul spells out there are now two ways to, to live, either flesh or spirit. Flesh, he says, that's the path to death. Spirit is the path to life and peace. Listen to verse 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. And what is this mind of the flesh like? Well, it is against God, hostile to him. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It won't submit to God's law. And the result? Verse 8. They cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And here we have an indictment on our nation. For our nation has chosen to reject God's law, the law of marriage, as God has given. People declare that they won't submit, and so they are hostile. And the result, they cannot please God. It is the path to death. And then in contrast, verse 9 to 11 is the spirit, which is all about life. We're going to see more of that next week. I'm not going to delay on it except to read it this, this morning. But you see, it is the path of life. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is the choice that lies before us, life or death. It is astonishing to me that anyone would choose the life that leads to death, the path that leads to death. Here is the gift for every single human being on the planet. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
And I hope and pray that every single person in this room has set the mind on the path to life, the path of the Spirit. But if you have any uncertainty, please come and speak with me about it. Well, to wrap up, Romans 8, we're going to be looking at it further in the coming weeks, but it is, it's a climactic chapter. It lifts your spirit. You know that image in sporting uh, uh, contests, competitions, where there's been a tough battle and then there is the victor who lifts up the cup and the exaltation at victory. Well, the picture that comes to mind is that uh, wonderful series, the Rocky film, The Boxer, you know, and he, he runs up the stairs and gets to the top of the stairs and he's... Well, it, that's Romans 8. It lifts. It's a, a spirit of elation. It's an emotional text. We might think of that uh, at those dreadful um, mining collapses. There was one not so long ago in, in Thailand where there's, I think it was children who were trapped and then the long process of getting them out and then the success and the abs absolute elation when they're rescued. It is that elation that we have here in Romans 8 and the Apostles' uh, declaration. Why? Because of the verdict. No condemnation. That is the verdict of the final judgment day brought in to the present Declare that is the message of justification. It's what Charles Wesley put to verse in his wonderful hymn, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, O God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love. And so as you know that, you can face final judgment with confidence. And Romans 8 is all about assurance. And indeed, this message is at the very heart of part of the message of the great work of the Reformation, God's Spirit at work in the church. You see, Martin Luther asked the question, how can a weak, perverse and guilty sinner find a gracious God? The answer, in Christ Jesus. The assurance is that Christ truly died for us, that the Spirit is in us and that the Father loves us. And the ground of that assurance, it's not in, in us, in me. It's in what Christ has done, the sin offering. And here was the great Reformation claim. We can rest rather than be restless about our eternal state. We can be at peace rather than worry ourselves to pieces about that judgment. We can have assurance rather than carry anxiety about the future. You and I can take our final breath knowing that all will be well.
That is for those who have the Spirit of Christ, who live by the Spirit. And so I say to you, when it comes to faith, don't be a fraud. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amen.